Welcome back to Here and There, the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. This is Günther Hosting, and in today's episode, we are giving you a snapshot of Ukraine updates, focusing on Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. And then we are welcoming back to the show Gina Anderson, the executive director of the GAI. This is the podcast of the Germanic American Institute. Welcome. Willkommen. Where Germanic-speaking European countries... Germany. Deutschland. Austria. Österreich. Österreich. Switzerland. Schweiz. Blend with the Midwestern United States. Hallo. Hallo. Servus. We are here and there. And we invite you to come along on the journey. The invasion of the Ukraine is meanwhile in week three and commonly social media focuses on the exceptional efforts of President Zelensky, who is very present in social media platforms, trying to give Ukrainians a voice as they stand against the invader, the Russians. But the question, of course, is what do Dach, Germany, Austria and Switzerland regions do to support Ukraine in their efforts. Germany has a long-standing tradition not to export military weapons to other countries. Commonly, this has been an accepted fact of German procedure until the voices criticizing Germany's abstaining from involvement became loud enough that even Germany historically changed its course. Notably, Annalena Baerbock, the newly minted minister or secretary of foreign affairs, and also a member of the Green Party, said, after Russia's shameless attack, Ukraine must be able to defend itself. Economy Minister Robert Habeck said in a statement, the federal government is therefore supporting Ukraine in providing urgently needed materials. This is, of course, a significant shift resulting in that The German government said it will send weapons and other supplies directly to Ukraine. Germany has also supported restrictions to the SWIFT global banking system. This disabled the largest Russian banks from interbank cash transfers, practically cutting off the flow of money. The result from this is that the Russian ruble tanked below one cent worth of value per one ruble. In a rather unprecedented move, the usually very neutral, secretive and uninvolved Swiss have also changed their stance, freezing Russian assets in Swiss banks. Switzerland has also announced 35 tons of humanitarian and medical aid that they will be providing to Kyiv. They have activated the S-Permit, which facilitates emergency protections. The S-Permit generally allows people to live and work in Switzerland for one year with the possibility of extensions. Ukrainians, commonly, are permitted to stay for 90 days without a visa in Switzerland. This S-permit extends their stay. Refugees will be supplied with emergency aid, including clothing, tickets and cash. Just days after the initial invasion, Swiss transit networks announced anyone fleeing the conflict could travel free on long- and short-distance trains. Outside of finances, uh, weapons are being moved into strategically accessible positions. Germany sent 1,000 anti-tank weapons 
and 500 Stinger surface-to-air missiles to Ukraine with the note, as quickly as possible. The Russian invasion of the Ukraine marks a turning point. It threatens our entire post-war order, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz released in a statement. In this situation, it is our duty to help Ukraine to the best of our ability to defend itself against Vladimir Putin's invading army. Meanwhile, Poland even declared that they would loan their entire fleet of MiG-29s to the Ukraine, an aircraft that is mostly labeled with Russian instruments that are readable by Ukrainian pilots. However, that transaction would have led them through Rammstein Air Force Base, which the U.S. government quickly denied them access to. Perhaps this comes on the heels of Putin saying that any direct support could be seen as an act of war itself. Meanwhile, in a recent statement, Sweden announced that four Russian fighter jets invaded its airspace. So war is all around. Meanwhile, it appears that Russia is getting increasingly desperate accepting foreign soldiers, supposedly to the tune of 16,000 volunteers from war-torn Middle Eastern countries to enlist in the Russian army quasi as freedom fighters. Notably, the Ukraine has done the same, accepting foreign fighters to assist them in their efforts. However, the number in available basic military personnel between both nations and the firepower, as well as the ruthlessness of actions, differ greatly between the invading Russian forces and the Ukrainians, who are steadfastly defending their country. Interestingly, many countries, in particular Austria, prohibit its citizens from taking up arms in a foreign conflict. Legally, if any Austrian were to enlist with Ukrainian forces, or unfathomably, Russian forces, the Austrian government would rescind this person's citizenship. A rather challenging question falls upon Austria, though. The European Union has committed $500 million in weapons and aid packages directly to the Ukraine. Austria is a member of the European Union, but not a NATO member state. This is predominantly due to Austria's neutrality. However, the bigger question is one of ethics. Austrian Chancellor Nehammer tweeted, Austria was neutral, Austria is neutral, Austria will remain neutral. The question is, however, whether being a member state in an organization that now supplies military equipment and other aid impacts the foundation of neutrality itself. After this brief summary of the war in the Ukraine and how the Dach, German, Austrian and Swiss countries are involved or supporting the Ukraine, we are now going to a little bit happier of a topic and we are welcoming our executive director of the GAI, Gina Anderson. Every ship does need a captain, and to be honest, uh, not having been at the GEI to teach person-to-person, face-to-face, I haven't seen hours in quite a while until we engaged in today's Zoom meeting. And with us is the executive director of the GEI, Gina Anderson. And even though I don't see you in person, it's good to see you on the screen. Gina, how are you? 
Danke. I, I'm doing well. Thank you. Like, it's nice to see you as well. It's been a while. Indeed it has. I assume that you have plenty of things uh, to share with us uh, as far as the house is concerned and, of course, our language classes, how things are going. And one of the, I guess, questions, I suppose, that came up, which also is a result out of our last Q&A of the last episode that we published, is the idea of learning language. We all have our favorite concepts, our least favorite concepts, but in and of itself, learning language is, I would say, is a journey. And this is coming from a non-English speaker. So let me just ask actually something that even though we've had numerous conversations, I've never actually had the chance to ask you. How and why did you actually learn German, Gina? Oh, um, well, my very first German lesson was in third grade. I There was a girl in my class whose mother was from Germany, and she came in once a week and taught us some very basic German phrases. Um, she taught us the alphabet. And I remember on Fridays, we'd play German bingo. And that was really exciting because one time I won a hostess uh, cupcake as a prize. <laughs> and I just loved it from the minute I, I heard it. I loved the way you moved your mouth. I loved just felt like I had this, this secret language. I felt like I knew something my parents didn't know. And you know, from that moment on, I just always knew once I had the chance to take a class or to study a class, it would be German. So I always tell people, you never know what seeds that you're planting when you introduce them to language at a, at a young age. So so once you got off the high of the first cupcake that you won, <laughs> did, did you actually have a chance to continuously apply your German and uh, practice with uh, fellow students? Or how did that progress? Absolutely then? not. Absolutely not. It was this wonderful experience in third grade. And then my next opportunity to connect with German at all wasn't until ninth grade in high school. Um, and we were fortunate that our school had a fabulous German teacher and my brother had was two years older than I am, had taken German and had just such a great experience with it. So I just was so excited. And once in ninth grade, there was no doubt that I was going to take German. And uh, yeah, I guess the rest is history. <laughs> And, and at some point from just learning German and using it and having a secret language and winning desserts, uh, you decided to become a German teacher. That is not necessarily a logical progression, or is it? Um, well, it wasn't my intent. I, I, you know, I took as much German as I could in high school and I went on to college. I continued with German. Um, fortunately, I was able to test into a, a pretty high level because I had such a great high school German teacher and was able to pick up a minor pretty easily, which I never thought I would do anything with it. I just really loved the language. And mm -hmm. I had a couple opportunities to travel in Germany, both in high school to visit an exchange student and, and in college uh, on a, um, a work program. And uh, after college, I moved to the West Coast and was looking for a job in this very small private school, was looking for a German teacher. And I thought, well, why not? I didn't have to have a, be certified in teaching German and uh, since it was a private school and uh and that's how i started and so i had to kind of learn the hard way how to how to teach the language what memories are coming back to you because uh just looking at your facial expression via zoom it's it's almost like you're walking down memory lane what's what are you thinking when you think back well for one i think of how bad of a teacher i was in those beginning years um <laughs> how i i thought i could just really engage these, you know, kids. And, and I was only like 23 and I had kids in class who were, you know, 16, 17, 18. 
um, and uh, thought that they would all just be as super in love with German grammar as I was and just find it fascinating, the difference between the genitive and the dative case, but <laughs> ended up not being the case. And so, uh, yeah, then came the challenge. And as a German teacher, I, I would just say a shout out to all the German teachers out there, especially those that are, you know, the, those high school teachers that I, I hear you, I, I know the, the workload that you have, because when you're a German teacher, you generally have six different preps, you know, you teach German one, two, three, a combination, four, five class, plus, I mean, I taught an aerobics class to be full-time, and then all the after school, and then as a German teacher, you're continually marketing your program. You have to sell people on the concept of why it's good to learn German mm -hmm. and why your students should pick German and, and instead of Spanish. I mean, I've always felt like there was this competition with the other, with all with the world languages about right. for students. And um, because sometimes your job depended on it, you know, it's an elective. So if you didn't have enough of students in class, uh, you know, you could lose your job. But but more importantly, you just really wanted, at least I did, to provide students with this amazing gift that I had been given that allowed me to travel the world and opened up so many doors for me. And, and to communicate that to parents that, yes, learning German will not be a waste of time. You know, when they say, well, why should we learn German? Because they all speak English anyway. So that was part of the challenge. And to continually, uh, you know, you had to convince the students, too, that not only was it you know, a good for them and good for their futures, but it's going to be fun and exciting along the way as well. And so, um, so I know I tell the German teachers, I know what's on your plate and I'm committed as, as uh, uh, in the leadership role here at the GAI to, to continue to do whatever we can to support the German teachers out there in, in the public school system. Now, what's interesting is to, to reflect upon the marks that a teacher left within your life, just introducing a language to you that, was not introduced at home because uh, it was the secret language that your parents didn't have. Audra, did your parents speak German? Oh, no. It, again, it was one of those things where I chose to, or in seventh grade, you had to take a trimester of Spanish, a trimester of Chinese, and a trimester of German. And then rolling into eighth grade, you had to pick one. And you could change the language after eighth grade if you wanted to, and you could go back and take another uh, beginner level course in high school of a different language if you wanted to but I seventh grade German that's where it hit for me I got excited about it I had some really really fabulous teachers and it became my own little world I loved going to German class and I think Gina what you said about it being like your own little secret language I've never thought about it that way but that's absolutely what it was you had this other cool different thing that I don't know, your parents didn't have. <laughs> but, but you didn't know that going into your language selection. So what actually pushed you or pulled you towards learning German as opposed to the other options? You know, I, I truly do think it was the teachers um, and what they chose to focus on in their like short little trimester that they had with us, their curriculums. Um, the German classes were based around like dancing and singing and we put on little plays and we watched videos and we looked foolish. We looked absolutely foolish, but it was so much more fun than the Spanish classes that were that tended to be structured around grammar and call and response sort of dynamic, which we had in the German classes, but it just it wasn't it wasn't as like free, I suppose. We didn't do the dancing, we didn't do the singing, we didn't do the little plays. 
we read texts and looked at grammar. So when you when you think back, Gina, the highs and lows and some of the plateaus, uh, what what stands out to you in terms of the highest highs of actually learning or comprehending German or some of the frustrations, perhaps? And uh, did you experience plateaus and, and how did you actually get beyond them? So I would like to speak to everyone out there who's learned German as a foreign language because you were, you are never finished with it. And it, we talked about it being this lifelong journey. And I can't tell you how many times in my position, people, whether I'm answering the phone or I talk with somebody, they start to speak to German and, and they immediately have to say, I'm sorry, my German is not very good. And just, they're all embarrassed and, and ashamed of like, it's, it's the level that they are. And I, it just feels like nobody, unless you really grew up bilingual, is ever confident enough in their German skills. And that's, and I will put myself in there as well. I can be, I have a, so here's a secret. I have a master's degree in German literature, and yet I can have to write an email response to someone at Goethe Institute in German and be sweating bullets and like want Katrin to go proof it first before I hit send because it just feels like you can learn a, a very high level, a, you know, a, a really good proficiency of German, but to get to that level where you don't sound like an American trying to speak German, to me, I would say even I'm not. I'm not there yet. <laughs> it just feels so unattainable. I mean, you, you really have to live many, many years in the country. You have to really polish your grammar. And uh, it, it's, it's to, to those, to those, to those German students who are still on the, the journey, I'm right there with you. And just know you are not alone. Everybody feels that way. Everybody feels insecure that their German is not good enough. Let me also allow a little bit of uh... Uh, self-disclosure here, I suppose. Um, after having been in the U.S. now for 23 years, when I have to write actually an email or a response to my dad, for instance, in German, uh, predominantly speaking English, obviously, in my day-to-day -day life, uh, I too experience the uh, just sort of stop and think kind of momentum where it's like, wait a minute, how am I adequately expressing this now? It's because German is a complex language. I mean, that's just all there is to it. But it's also a wonderful and beautiful language to express yourself in, except you really got to know what you want to say. And there's my pro tip to this. Write your German responses on an iPad and set your keyboard to German because you're going to get autocorrect in German. That is a wonderful solution for many difficulties. Well, I mean I think with German, what's what's so complex about it is there's just seem to be such a great disparity between spoken German and written German. And that written German is so hard to build up to that level of of competency and fluency that we all want. Um, you know, there's there's still people that have masters and advanced degrees that still take, composition courses at Goethe Institute just to practice the writing and writing and writing. And also too, writing is one of the hardest things to teach as well. So a lot of places shy away from teaching the writing because it is a really labor intensive skill to teach uh, because all the, the, the grammar, the, the thought shots, the, the word choice, the, the, the style, all of it comes together uh, in writing. And then there's, there's usually a lot of correcting that comes with it <laughs> if, a, if a teacher is teaching a composition class. So, um, yeah, it, especially so if you are 
you know, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. You know, I feel like I can fake it pretty well. It feels like I'm faking it pretty well when I'm speaking, but when I'm writing, then it's, it's there. It's, it's the proof. The proof is right there. There's no getting away from it. So sometimes I just have to literally tell myself like, it's okay. Like you're not a native. It doesn't have to be perfect. And, uh, what I've found is that most Germans are just so, accepting and and just excited that somebody is attempting right to, to use oh, yeah. to use their german and they're not listening for every mistake you made with the ending or did you put that uh verb in the right place or not 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 even close to i mean speaking from my side as a native speaker i don't really care if you mess up here and there or if you forget to pronounce the a in porsche and uh, instead of saying just Porsche, you know, it's just something as trivial as trivial as that, which many people get hung up on. It's like we don't. So I would uh, strongly suggest that you also don't get hung up on that. And as far as writing is concerned in German, I think more so than in English, actually, German, once you figure it out uh, in terms of how to write, you are going to realize that German has... I would just say a melody to it when you write. And you can read a song uh, within that which you write, which makes it incredibly meaningful and easy to write, even though we have what in the U.S. would be considered a run-on sentence. And once you unlock that, you really know how to sing, quote-unquote, German in writing. And I think that is the highest form, actually, of having learned German. So mm-hmm. very much uh, very much agree with you on, on all of the above, of course. But um, that also now means that we have to understand some of the grammar concepts. So I'm going to go back to Gina, the German teacher. Wer, mm-hmm. wen und wem? Ooh, what's the difference? Yeah, so I think this, this ties into, uh, you know, you asked me earlier what my favorite concept is, my favorite grammar concept. I talk about the case system. And it really wasn't until I was learning German grammar that I understood that English has a case system as well. It, it might not be as, as complex as German, but I would find myself sometimes thinking, what's the correct word to use in English? You know, do I use I or me sometimes if in an object sense? And I would think, well, what would it be in German? And then flip it back and it helped me figure out what the, what the correct pronoun to use in German was. So um, I, I love the fact that there's three different forms of of who or whom in in German and in English we uh, uh, tend to use who and whom interchangeably although uh, there there is a difference and uh, so you know it's just I can easily say well wer is when it's the subject of the sentence anytime you might use he or you know or I you could substitute that you would use wer Wen is then the object when you might use me, but this difference of wem is we don't have in English. Now it's the to whom or for whom. And um, I, I just like it that there's there's three different ways and it differentiates, you know, sometimes is this person the object? Is this the, or the thing that is being acted upon or is this the wem, the person who is receiving something? So um, yeah, that's that's one of my personal personal loves, grammar loves. It is uh, the, I think, appropriate time to plug our language classes. <laughs> if you want to learn this in detail, just hop on over to gaimn.org and register for one of our adult language classes. We are happy to teach you all the nitty-gritty on that. Uh, but I also see here on our little backup sheet that you have a concept in there that essentially is uh, relating to interchangeable 
propositions or Wechselpräposition. Why is that yeah. one of your favorites? Well, it's exciting. That's exciting for me to teach now once I finally learned the trick. And uh, we like tricks. What is it? I, I know. Well, I think <laughs> I explained this like two years ago because I, I used to struggle with it so much myself when I was learning because we don't have this concept of Wechselpräposition in, in English. Um, is, is And I would think of a, I could remember in high school, you know, doing worksheets and trying to figure out, ich schreibe an die Tafel, ich schreibe an der Tafel, and be literally thinking about, well, I'm standing there and I'm writing and I'm not moving, I'm not going anywhere. So I think it should be dative. Um, but then actually it's accusative. And why is that? And, and once I had this aha moment that if you can use the word to as in to with the preposition and it makes sense then it's accusative so for example if i say i'm writing on the board or if i can also say i'm writing onto the board i'm writing onto the board i mean that makes sense that it's accusative otherwise it would be dative and that can work with um pretty i think all the vexel preposition and if you say i'm going ich gehe in das Haus. You could also, you can say, I'm going in the house. You can also say, I'm going into the house. So that word to works. So now we're gonna use accusative. So once I figured out that little trick of, of the, ask yourself the word to, if it makes sense, then you know it's accusative. But I can remember like picturing, you know, the, 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 das Bild hängt, is it hanging on the wall? Is it, well, it's not moving, it's static. So, okay, so, but if you just have the pictures hanging onto the wall, that doesn't work. So that has to be dated. Right. But I'm I remember you when I was learning German. <laughs> see, it's exciting, right? And it was, that's what's so exciting. That's why it's my favorite thing to teach because I see people's faces light up when they say, oh, okay, I get it. Like, that's, that's what I love. And I think sometimes, honestly, that's where being a non-native speaker gave me an advantage teaching the language because I I had to really figure it out and get in there and, and analyze it and say, well, why is it that way? Rather than, you know, maybe a, a native is like, well, it just is. And so um, so I think there are times, but being a non-native, you understand the language, at least the grammar complexities more than a native speaker because you've had to figure it out. As a native speaker, I would have to wholeheartedly agree with you on that in a sense that, yes, uh, to me, this is just how it is. And then we are trying to figure out how to adequately explain that. And this is not the first time that when you explain it, that even my light bulb goes off. It's like, yeah, this is a really good idea. It's a great analogy to actually use in future classes. So once again, thank you. I appreciate that. It's going to go into sure. my yeah. internal Rolodex of tips and tricks, uh, courtesy of Gina. I'm still very much a teacher at heart. <laughs> well, then uh, every teacher also has a least favorite concept. What did you find to be the most challenging to introduce so that it gets understood? And then, of um, course, what well, is your personal yeah. last one? I I still struggle with reflexive pronouns because we don't have a lot of yeah. reflexive pron pronouns and we don't really have a lot of reflexive verbs in, in English. Um, we don't say I'm going to go set myself down in the chair, right? Um, <laughs> so, 
uh, just the concept to begin with was hard and to just realize, well, yes, every single time you say this, you have to use ich setze mich, um, I'm setting myself down. And then when it gets really crazy, and I'll admit, I still don't think I do this right, is once you start to have that reflexive verb and pronoun in a clause, like where the heck you put the reflexive pronoun? Like, yeah. I, I feel like I just throw in a zish in there somewhere where it makes sense or seems like it makes sense, but I never really have confidence that, that I'm putting it in the right place. So if I don't understand it well, I, you know, and then I'm, I'm going to hate to teach it. And, and I can look at the rules and there are somewhat rules about it, but it really feels more of an intuitive thing. And if anybody out there has figured out a really good rule of thumb about where you put zish within a clause, and some people say, well, as close to the verb as possible, but true. Sometimes that can be, you know, that can be interpreted differently as what's possible. So that is very yeah, true. I, I don't like to teach it because I still am not secure about it. Well, it it is a tricky one to teach, no doubt. Even from my perspective, it's like, wait a minute, there is uh, not always just one option. I mean, it really depends on how I'm constructing the sentence. Where am I placing this? And sometimes it really comes out for personally to me is what sounds right. That is just the worst advice I can give because to me it sounds right because obviously I grew up with it. Uh, for a non-native speaker, what sounds right may just be one of the challenges. However, I would say the greatest art form in actually learning a foreign language is to develop the feel for it and then actually recognize, okay, this really does sound right. And once you hit the nail on the head then and it really is right, then what sounds right becomes quite intuitive. Also, I see... Passive voice. That is something I have never taught in German. So fill me in on that if you would. <laughs> I actually haven't. I mean, I usually teach the, teach the beginners classes. We don't use passive voice in there. Oh, well, you know, I think German tends to use passive voice more often than English. And just the way it's constructed, that the primary verb is the verb werden, is a form of werden. Um, as, as what you conjugate just really doesn't make any sense to me. But um, so first of all, people have to memorize all the different forms of werden um, that you would use. And then, of course, now you've got double verbs. So you can really have a train wreck of verbs that sort of pile up at the end of the sentence when you're in passive voice. And sometimes you can kind of get lost and wait a minute, what verb was I at <laughs> by the time you get to the end of the sentence? So um, my students hated it because it was just such a, you know, another example of splitting the verb and um and with passive voice, sometimes very long sentences. And, and, and uh, so since they, it was really a struggle. Um, but, you know, then there are always some, some of the German nerds who I have a very special place <laughs> in my heart for who like me would maybe sort of geek out on it and right. Give me more, give me more worksheets, right. Using passive voice, or let me try to take all these sentences and, and convert them from, you know, active to passive voice. But uh, in general, I can just remember students really struggling with it. Uh, one of the things that I have noticed to be a brain fry uh, sort of uh, agenda is when we depart from that which has rules, which a lot of the things in German do have rules, and then suddenly we get to articles. And thus far, I have not really found a solid 100% fail-proof way to uh, explain articles. I mean, there are some things that have rules, uh, such as uh, cars are mostly masculine, or actually call all the cars are masculine, all the motorcycles are usually uh, neuter, um, or actually 
Yeah, it starts Motorrad and then it's the BMW. So there's another switch in there, right? So uh, motorcycles are feminine. So then we have alcohol, which is mostly masculine, until you get to beer, then it's Das beer. But other than that, there are very few rules to hold on to. And the things that I have found incredibly challenging to explain is uh, which uh, gender is this particular noun. Do you have any, any tips on that, Gina? Um, well, I, I just think in general, it's re- most oftentimes it's more related to the structure of the word rather than what it refers to. Um, so, you know, like what if it, verb, okay. if it, if a word might end in ER, then it's, it might, it's more likely to have der as, as the article. But I think here's another exa- reason why German students take heart. If you've ever stopped to think about that German has six different words for the word the, <laughs> and then they can change depending on how it's used. So take heart it is it's a difficult language and uh you know we could say well we just use the word the and that's why it must be so much easier to learn english now i know english is going to have so many difficult things to learn as well in our own complexities but uh i i used to sing with my students i can still sing the church dirty dusty dame dusty dame there dame dame this i can still do that all like from rote memorization um and had some songs and that we did to learn them but it, it is difficult. So there are some rules. And if anybody wants to contact me offline about how <laughs> you can figure it out based on the structure of the word, you know, it's very simple things. Like if it ends in E, it's most likely it's article is D. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are, you know, modern, modern words tend to be DAS, but not always. So, um, so don't, don't get too hung up onto what the word refers to. It's more of the, the, the structure of the word itself. But perhaps in the next uh, couple of years for the English speaker, it's going to get a little bit easier because we are absorbing a lot of English words into the German language, mostly in tech, of course. But I think we have like 4,000 plus uh, English words in German now. And of course, we Germanize them. So to chat becomes chatten, which still sounds to me like chalk uh, on a... Uh, blackboard, so nails on a blackboard rather. Um, but this is, I think, a little bit where we're trending. And this is, I suppose, where the blending of languages really comes in play and makes a lot of sense. But also from a non-English speaker, I can certainly sympathize with you because that it wasn't easy for me either. I mean, I had English starting in first grade. And it was taught typical book English, uh, textbook English, if you will, with very little application. And then the first time they dropped me into the UK for the first two weeks, I understood between nothing and even less than that. So it was a borderline trial by fire to be thrown in there, if you will. And then slowly but surely I came to and started to understand uh, how to actually use English. And even though today I feel that I'm expressing myself reasonably adequate, it's still a continuous learning process, picking up uh, different uh, sayings, different idioms and whatnot, and just continuously learning. And this, uh, I suppose, also then transposes over the German language that the learning in and of itself never does indeed stop. Well, I have to say, Gunther, I'm very jealous of how how well you speak English. If I could speak German as well as you speak English, I would be ecstatic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but I'm curious, what, what do you remember with being a very hard concept in English grammar to learn? Uh, the concepts in and of themselves were actually not that difficult. Uh, 
it was because when you come from a highly structured language such as, such as German, uh, using other concepts, it's not necessarily the main challenge. The application of the concept when you're actually boots on the ground and you, you now have to speak it with all the things that are not like the textbook, with all the sayings, all the, the uh, idiosyncrasies, the verbal changes where you use a word differently than it was expressed in the dictionary and or in the course book. And suddenly you find yourself within a concoction of English uh, words that makes zero sense with you for you. And then when you uh, consider that we have, I don't know, about 700,000, what it seems, uh, accents in the U.S., it's all over anyway. Because uh, to this day, if you drop me into Kentucky, for instance, I need a hot minute to actually, you know, tune my ear on what is being said. So it's, for me, the most challenging piece was to understand how things are being expressed, not so much the syntax of it, but how English is used by actual English speakers. And I suppose this is where German differs a little bit, because when I look at our course books at the GEI, we really don't deviate that much in actual boots-on-the-ground German use, so to speak, from the book, which makes it, I suppose, quite successful in application within, the, within a confined learning environment. Mm -hmm. So that, those were my challenges. Mm -hmm. Interesting. See, I've heard that one of, one of the challenges, too, is just how English can have, you know, the... the very fine distinctions between, you know, lots of different words that can be expressing the same thing, but there's just a tiny bit of a difference, you know, like, like <laughs> some, like, I'm going to scoot versus scooch versus, you know, all these different little ways you could move your body. And um, for example, is one that comes to mind that we've just made these, these, you know, very, and, and we understand like what the difference between scoot and scooch is, <laughs> but but try to explain that to somebody, I think would be pretty hard. I think Scooch might even just be Minnesotan. I'm, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, from, from, from my perspective, what was really challenging was, for instance, the cough, though, throw, uh, all those things that end in O-U-G-H. It's like, what were you guys thinking? But this is really one of those, uh, okay, let's check this out in the dictionary. Okay, this is what it means. This is how it pronounces and then it really is just application and use case. Mm -hmm. But the though, throw, and whatever else ends in O-U-G-H, uh, that, that was a true brain tease, I can tell you that much. Yeah, well, I have an 11-year-old, and let me tell you, I don't think he's figured it out yet either. Oh, good, good, I, good, think, good. I think all that's going to go away. <laughs> well, those, those sort of uh, archaic spellings or that are carryover from old English, I, don't, I, don't, I see the next generation just does not use them, and it's driving me absolutely nuts um, when I read anything that he's written. And, of course, it's on the computer, but uh, to, to yet to be determined, I guess. You know, the last time I talked... Uh... Well, we talked 30 minutes worth of grammar. I don't remember, but it's incredibly refreshing. However, before uh, we put everybody else to sleep with our enthusiasm, or <laughs> even though we are enthusiastic, uh, let's check back in real quick uh, onto what 22 actually holds for the GAI. We've been, much like any other organization, particularly nonprofits, in what I would say uh, quite uh, the thunderstorm of challenges throughout the last couple of years, uh, thanks to the pandemic. And no better to have, uh, 
the executive director of the GEI with us to actually give us an idea as to what actually does 22 hold for the GEI. Can you give us a little bit of an insight outside of what's in the newsletter? Yeah, well, you know, everybody can read that we're we're opening back up again and we are bringing back our live events. Um, something new that we're trying is, is holding more events offsite and actually crossing the river and heading over into Minneapolis. So it was really fun to plan and produce a keynote audit at the Trilon Theater in Minneapolis. Um, attendance was far beyond what we were expected and, and we heard from people that they want more of that. So I think we are, the board is, is actively out looking for space partners. Where does it make sense to have different types of uh, cultural programs and, and reach out to audiences besides just what we have here at the house, as much as we know everybody loves coming here. Um, sometimes it's maybe not the easiest place to get to or something like a movie really you're more more comfortable in a theater. So uh, I think looking look for more opportunities like that. Um, we're busy planning Deutsche Tage though. We're going back to if uh, on-site, the house open, um, the model that we know and love from the past. Um, and so we're, we're already starting to plan that. Really excited about welcoming back a, a normal after two years worth of slightly altered Deutsche Tage events. So that's from the... Um, from the event side, I think from the uh, mission and advocacy side, we continue to really drill down on our connection to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 SDGs, and the ones that GAI has identified as our primary ones to um, promote and, and um, uh, build programs and education around. So uh, our primary goal as no surprise is education. SDG number four is, is quality education. And so um, the, that goal at the United Nations level has been outlined. What does that mean? How do you provide more, more students, more people over the world opportunities for quality education? And bilingual education is a part of that. And we, um, we are really working hard about offering more scholarships or meeting students where they are. How can we provide this opportunity for uh, language learners or even non-language learners to have a, a, an experience in Germany, whether it's a scholarship, whether it's we're sponsoring a student to spend a summer in Germany through a study trip or a cross-cultural experience because everybody, you know, people within our community or, or anybody who's traveled overseas knows it changes you. And if you have this opportunity to study overseas or live with a host family at a young age, it puts your life on a different trajectory. And so we want more people, more students, more young people to have that opportunity. And um, when we uh, look back to some of the really memory inducing and creating large events that we've had in the, in the last number of years, such as Daichitage, of course, which we actually did have, on the GI grounds and uh, looking forward to having it back. One of the biggest events that we've always put on was the Oktoberfest at the Schmidt Brewery, uh, 10, 15, 20,000 people there uh, over the course of two days or so two and a half days. Uh, can we expect um, the Oktoberfest to come back this year? Is there a probability for that or possibility? There is a possibility. We are, I'm still working with the board on what format it will take and evaluating um, the success. I think, you know, everybody agreed it was really fun having it on the grounds last year, um, having it here on site. And uh, so we're hopeful, but I am not going to promise anything just yet. Fair enough. Uh, it would be great to see it revived, of course, within the confinements of what we can do to make it a 
quality event. Personally, of course, I am needing to get a heads up because I got to lose the COVID pounds to fit back into my lederhosen. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, and we need you to carry the keg, the, the ceremonial opening keg for us. So in, in the absence of the horse. Okay, I got it. Thank you. <laughs> But you also mentioned the board. Um, the board is also going through a shift in itself. I mean, we're going to see our beloved board members sort of flip out and the new ones come in. <laughs> well, I hope they don't flip out. No, I'm just well, kidding. Well, not flip out. That wasn't. <laughs> okay. oh, yes, I mean, I, I think that's a good sign, though. We're, we're um, I, I think it's six board members who will be um, rolling off this year. And it's because they, they've reached the maximum um, term limits. So we have really great board retention. And so people that... Uh, are elected to our board and serve generally stay on for a full six years um, and sometimes with an appointment and whatnot and COVID some of them were with us for as long as seven to eight years so um, so per our bylaws um, and I think it's a good thing to to recruit new talent and bring new people with fresh ideas on board but we're really losing some stellar board members but I I have my ways of making sure I'm going to keep them involved so um, yeah I'm, I'm they won't get too far the board member emeritus. I like the concept in and of itself. Um, the other, I would say, initiative that we talked about frequently in the last uh, number of years is the German concept of the apprenticeship. And mm -hmm. we are continuing to promote that. Has that changed its uh, nature and its uh, appearance a little bit? Or how does that actually continue on? Uh, well, you know, the... the our, our project was focused on promoting the apprenticeship model, at least in phase one. And then with phase two, we were working with primarily medical device companies as, and even the governor and, this, um, and um, other leaders in, in the business world here in the Twin Cities about how do we actually create more apprenticeship opportunities in the Twin Cities. Uh, the pandemic's put a stop to those plans as they were. Um, you know, no, there was a phase where nobody was hiring, the companies were scaling back on training. And so that had to go on back burner for a while. Um, but we did, uh, Audra and, 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 and Aaron and our communications team built a really great apprenticeship resource page on the website. So that is one way we've been able to move it forward. We feel like there should be a place where parents or anybody who's looking for more information about what are the various opportunities for apprenticeship for my for my son or daughter um, can find them in one spot. So that's a um, building out that web, web page is, is a goal of ours. And I think now that we are opening back up and we're able to connect with companies, connect back with the Chamber of Commerce, the German Chamber of Commerce here in the Twin Cities, um, ICAP, which is the apprenticeship program based out of Chicago and pick up those conversations about how do we create more apprenticeship opportunities here in Minnesota. Right. And as we're doing all these projects, we're also still connecting to the larger community in greater ways, including the Ukrainian American Community Center. Um, can you speak to sort of how we're continuing to work with other communities and what I, I mean, I know what the GAI is doing to a certain extent, but I'll let you talk about it. Right. Well, obviously, our focus right now is the Ukrainian community and uh, we received a plea from help from the Ukrainian American Community Center that 
um, you know, they're, hold, they're hosting a rally at the Capitol on Sunday and they wanted our support in spreading the word. And we were able to pull in our honorary consul, the consul general in Chicago, and really build a, a platform to, to promote Germany's and the United States both support for Ukraine. And um, I'm, I'm hoping there's just a my blowout attendance at Sunday's rally. And I feel very proud of both um, American and German governments and the stance that they're taking. And so um, we will be connecting also with Global Minnesota. They're planning some events um, throughout the month of March so people can better understand uh, what's happening in Ukraine and we'll help promote those and take part in those as well. In the meantime, I've heard of a rather interesting grassroots efforts by individual um, consumers, if you will, that's not uh, geographically limited, uh, where individuals book, for instance, an Airbnb in Kiev from a Ukrainian provider. Of course, they are located somewhere in the world, so they have no intention on consuming their booking. But they ensure through that avenue, which is also greatly supported by Airbnb itself, that funds are going to Airbnb hosts, whereas the location booked is then being made available to people who have lost their housing through shelling, bombing, or other unfortunate, of course, war-related circumstances. So quite an interesting grassroots effort, uh, of course, heavily um, opened up the opportunity by technology and by a supportive global organization such as Airbnb. So this is also one of the opportunities perhaps to uh, individually help and just do one thing one time and really make a measurable difference uh, in somebody's life that you've never met. So quite some interesting things going on out in the wider world. Absolutely. With that being said, uh, Gina, it has been forever to see you and to have you on the show. Let's uh, try to not make this uh, that long of time in between. We see you again next time. Thank you for yeah. coming on. I apologize, apologize for anybody that I bored <laughs> geeking out on grammar, but I know that there's a, a small group of German nerds who I could probably go on to for hours with about this. So we should just put on a grammar session with Gina. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. Anytime. That's why I was so quiet during the podcast. I was just listening and consuming information. <laughs> that, that's a plug. You've heard it here first. Grammar session with Gina. If this is something you want to support, uh, just email us at podcast at org and let us know. Grammar session with Gina and we'll see that we can make that happen. Other than that, Gina, thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. Greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And Audra, also, thank you so much for being here. It's my job. <laughs> <laughs> As it is mine. And we will hear you again next time.